All right. So as I said, my name is AJ Exner. I am one of your elders here. I also help with city groups. Um, we are, uh, I, I've been given the op awesome opportunity to come in front of you today and, and to preach. Uh, and it was supposed to be Dr. Marshall, but due to a surgery, uh, we had to push him back. So June 4th, if you want to circle your calendars and look forward to him preaching, that'll be uh, here in just a couple of weeks. And so today, what I really want to do is I want to lay a little bit of groundwork. So this summer, as Daniel's mentioned, we're going to be going through the book of Judges. And then in the fall, we're going to be doing what we're calling redemption through history. And so all these things, basically meaning the rest of 2017, we're going to be in the Old Testament, which a lot of you guys have probably spent little to no time in confession. A lot of what we've done has been in the New Testament, even here at Hill City. This will be the first time we've spent any extended amount of time in the Old Testament. And so I think it's important to, in these next couple of weeks, to lay a little bit of groundwork for you guys uh, to kind of get you excited a little bit about it because two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. And so there's obviously a lot to be said in that part of the Bible, uh, but we just haven't yet. And so the rest of 2017, we're going to have the opportunity to really study and understand the Old Testament. And I think what you guys will find is there's a lot of beauty in it. And so I'll, ask, I'll start with this kind of rhetorical question for you guys. When you think of the Old Testament, what tends to come to mind? As, as I kind of thought about it, you know, that initial thought um, is almost like a crazy relative. You know, the one that you almost don't want to have come up in conversation like, oh, that guy. Yeah, holidays with that guy. It's interesting. Or uh, maybe no, it's, no offense to anybody who might be one of these. I apologize uh, to any like redheaded stepchildren. You know, you just, the Old Testament's almost treated as though it's kind of cast aside and like, man, I hope, I hope nobody brings that thing up right now. You know, there's a lot of uh, secular organizations that will bring up the Old Testament as almost to try and be proof against the Bible. Like, well, you believe this. And they almost try to discredit or discard anything that you have to say from that point on using Old Testament. But what I want to do is try to, again, lay a little bit of groundwork for you. I want to help to remove maybe some of those stigmas that might be associated with the Old Testament. And even more than that, I would love to just foster a little bit of an excitement for the rest of 2017 as we get going through the book of Judges, and then especially in the fall as we look at the overarching narrative throughout the Old Testament. And I think what you'd find is that there's a lot of beauty to be found in the Old Testament. And so by us removing these stigmas, I'm hoping that we can come to a deeper and richer understanding of the Old Testament, and from that, come to a deeper and richer understanding of God's love for us. And so uh, if you guys want to get your Bibles ready, your notes ready, uh, we're just going to be rolling. We're going to be jumping around a little bit today, so I want you to you know, try and follow as best you can. And so what I want to do is just start, again, with just a little bit of groundwork, just a little bit of understanding regarding the Old Testament. So the Old Testament came together. Um, a lot of times when we read it, we almost think of it as like a book of fairy tales or legends. You know, in the same way that you might read like Humpty Dumpty or any uh, Mother Goose fairy tale, a lot of times we almost look at the Old Testament that way, especially when we read some of the stories of, of some of these heroes of the faith. Um, but I don't want you to, I don't want you to think that way. 
Now, I want you to come, especially as we're going into the book of Judges, there are going to be some miraculous things that happen in the book of Judges. And it's going to be very easily for your mindset to shift when it comes to how you're interpreting the story. It's going to be easy to say, oh, you know, that's, that's then. You know, that, 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 you know, hey, that's cool and all. It's a great story. I'll kind of pick and choose some stuff. But I want, I want us to come to a full understanding uh, of what it is because God gave us his word, including the Old Testament. And from the beginning, he gave it to us. He, he, he has given it to us from the very beginning. And so I think because it is divinely given, it is inspired, true, authoritative, and sufficient that I think we need to study it a little bit more. And so when we're thinking about how it all came together, let's just start again from the beginning. So Moses wrote really the first five books, what we would call the Pentateuch. And we see that, we see record the fact that he's the one who did it in Exodus 17, 24, 34, Numbers 33, and Deuteronomy 31. So it's not like they're speculating here. It says in those chapters, Moses record these things that are happening to the Jewish people. So it's not a big mystery there. And really from there, the rest of the Old Testament, you could probably gather who wrote which book. And you think of you know, who wrote the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. How about Isaiah? Well, Isaiah. Joshua, some guy named Joshua. So there are some books as we go through that were written by uh, accumulation of people. But for the most part, most of the Old Testament is understood of who wrote it and even some of their styles uh, that they wrote it with. And that's specifically what I want to talk about a little bit today. Because again, as we're trying to just open up the Old Testament a little bit, what I want to do is break it down a little bit for us. Especially when you're thinking, you know, one, one sermon, one Sunday. I want to try and break it up a little bit. And so what we're going to do is there's one way that a lot of theologians kind of break down the Old Testament. And they do it through a means called literary styles. So again, warning to the note takers and people who are going to follow along. We're going to be jumping around a lot. Uh, so it's going to be a good time. So the six main literary styles that, that theologians have kind of broken the Old Testament down to are history, law, wisdom, poetry, prophecy, and apocalyptic. So if you compare this to the New Testament, the New Testament is mainly a, just a, a collection of letters that were written from one person to another or from one person to a group of people. And really most of the, Old, or most of the New Testament was written really in a span of about 100 years. So it's a pretty tight window uh, and a pretty select and specific literary style. But what we see in the Old Testament is just a collection of literary styles collected over thousands of years. Uh, and what I want to do is pay attention to each specific style, give examples of each, and then in a way how we could interpret it from as we read it using this interpretive lens. And so it's important to do this. Because God's word is perfect. But oftentimes, our interpretation of it is not. You following with me? So this is why it's important to kind of understand like this. I'm going to give you just an example real quick. Because understanding the genre or the style of what you're reading is essential. So if you go to Psalms 1, very first one. So King David wrote most of the Psalms. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. But if you read Psalm chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says... He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff in the that the wind drives away. Now, he's talking about a man who delights in the law. Now, what he's not actually saying is that a man who delights in the law becomes a tree. Again, sometimes it's, you can read that, but out of context, you might interpret it that way. 
If you compare that to the same man, David, his words in 1 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 2, he says, Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. And as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. Now the lens that you would read that through, they're very similar sounding, but it's important to understand that there in 1 Kings, this is actually his last words as he's dying to his son Solomon. So there's a little bit of a different context that you're reading it, even though the content is similar. It's important to understand that one, the first one's a bit more poetic, as the Psalms tend to be, and the other one is a lot more historic. It's an event that actually happened, and they're actually recording the words that he said. So it's important to distinguish this because oftentimes there are meanings and truths to be found in interpreting it the correct way. And so, again, we're going to walk through each of those six styles. Uh, you can write them down and then fill them out as we go. And so the first one I want to start with is historical. It's a historical literature. Most of the Old Testament really reads like historical document. Uh, you look at the, the census that's taken in the book of Numbers, the dimensions for the ark in Genesis, or even the judges in the book of Judges. But I want, I want to challenge you guys with this a little bit this morning. I, I think we have a, a number of history teachers, the, the, the cool hairy guy that leads worship for you guys. He's actually a history teacher, uh, Scott. So, but I want to ask you this. If you were sitting in Mr. Hardwick's history class, and he was teaching American history, would you take what he's saying to you the same way that you would read sections of the Old Testament? Would you look for historical accuracy and truth the same way as you're reading the Old Testament that you would as you were reading a history book? A lot of people don't realize this, but you can actually look through the Old Testament and see and show that a lot of archaeological history follows and parallels the Bible almost exactly. If you look at the book of Exodus, starting in Exodus 1, verse 11, we actually see a reference to what the Israelites are building for the Egyptians while they're in captivity, and they talk about the city of Ramses. This is a reference to the Pharaoh Ramses II, who coincides closely around the, the time of a guy you might recognize, King Tut. Um, it actually parallels very closely with that, uh, and a lot of people don't realize that the, the believed Pharaoh during that time of Exodus is Amenhotep the second. So it's a little boring history, but it's at the same time, I think it provides a little bit of depth to us that as we're reading it, it's not this distant fairy tale. And then, oh, when I go to history class, this is over here, but that they come together as one. Even if you look at the last, if you go to the end of the Old Testament, if you look at the minor prophets, the last minor prophet of Malachi ends at about the year 450 BC. And then there's a time called the interbiblical period where there's this time of darkness for God's people, or they're looking for prophets. They're not hearing anything. They're wondering what's going on. Well, if you look at history, this also coincides with the rise of Rome and the rise of Western philosophical thought. So names you might recognize, Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. Uh, I, I, would, I would think that as understanding that, that there's probably this rise of agnosticism that says that wisdom and your own understanding, that that is what your God is, that that is the true meaning of enlightenment. And so when you parallel that with what you're reading and what you're seeing in the Bible is, yeah, I can understand why that would bring some darkness to this world. 
And so when you read it with that lens and even understanding that the people groups that you're reading, all those ites, they, sometimes you have to ramble off when you're going through the Bible. Uh, you have the Hittites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, and then obviously the Egyptians. All these people, they existed. That history and archaeology can, can see that these people existed. And so when you're able to come at it with this, the impact of this is that what you're reading is true. That what you're reading isn't just a collection of fairy tales, but that it is history, that it is true, and that it's not made up. That you're reading real people with real faults, and you can interpret what you're reading from that. So that's that first style that I want you to kind of think about. And honestly, like I said, most of what you read, if you come with that lens, it's going to be accurate, and it's going to help you to interpret it a little bit better. The next style I want to talk about is the law. So now... Again, another kind of rhetorical question I want you to think about a little bit. What is the point of law? Maybe not like judges and juries or anything like that, but what is the point of laws? You know, generally speaking, I would say that laws are used to bring order to chaos. Uh, philosopher John Locke would say that they are the very bedrock of society, that without laws, the society will crumble uh, amongst itself. And so when we think about that, in the Old Testament laws, I think it's important to understand, again, the history of what led up to them. That you have this group of people, uh, the Israelites, that are, are being held captive as slaves in Egypt. And through this, this amazing amount of miracles, they're able to escape uh, and actually perform an exodus from Egypt. Uh, they're able to escape the Egyptians by literally a parting of the sea. They are walking on the ground of, of a sea get to the other side, the Egyptians are cast away, they are now free people. Uh, so Moses says, hey, I'm gonna go hear from the Lord real quick. He goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, gets a word from the Lord, and by the time he comes back down, all those people who witnessed all these miracles are worshiping and thanking a golden calf for their freedom. That in, just in that short span of time, they had already disobeyed, uh, and it's their stubbornness towards this golden cow that they wander for 40 years, and even in that wandering, relying on God. We see that in the book of Exodus and Numbers. And that when they get to the promised land, Moses is denied entry, and they are given the law to give to his people. We see that in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So what you have is, is a group of, of wandering people, true nomads, with no real governing system in any way. So then we wonder, why did God give them these rules? You know, God is not some kind of sadistic narcissist that enjoys watching his people suffer. He does not, he's not in the business of watching you agonize. So there's clearly a reason for why the law exists or why it existed. So just how we've said before that we are about the shalom of our city, that we are about the universal flourishing of Springfield, that I think here the reason for the law is that God is in the business of the shalom of his people. He's in the business of uh, seeing his people universally flourish. And so I think that's why we see the law. And I would propose that there are three reasons, and there are three different breakdowns of even the law. So as you read all those laws that, again, a lot of times are kind of brought to a Christian to say, hey, explain these. I think that there are real three ways you can kind of break these down. And again, being a good Baptist, we started each one with an R, so you're welcome. Um, the first is to retain cleanliness. Uh, second is to realize imperfection. And the third is to reconcile with God. 
Now, the first one, to retain cleanliness. A lot of times you might think of that as maybe holiness. You need to retain holiness. I think there's an element to that. But even as I was reading and studying a little bit, I think there's even another level to it that I think is a little bit simpler. Uh, so we can all agree that soaps and antibiotics are a pretty important aspect of our society today. Um, and I think we could all agree, again, I don't know the exact dates, but I think we can all agree that soaps and antibiotics weren't readily used back then. And so what's interesting is as you read a lot of the Levitical law, especially in chapters 14 and 15, you see uh, a lot of just cleanliness procedures that I would argue probably helped keep the Israelites physically alive for thousands of years. That you can actually still see that the Israelites, that the Jewish people have existed, that they still exist, rather than a lot of the other people groups that you might read about. And so I think what we see is this wide selection of rituals uh, that to a lot of people might seem tedious and unnecessary. But I think what we see is God, who's, the, who's a father, a God who cares for his people, that, that a father who in the same way you might today tell your kids to brush their teeth and wash their hands so that they don't get sick, I think in the same way God writes this set of rules to say, hey, do these things. You don't understand it yet because you don't have you know, microscopes and stuff, but at the same time, these are important. Don't disregard my law. He didn't say this specifically, but don't disregard my law so that you won't die. And again, I think there's a couple of different ways that you can kind of go with that. The second is to realize imperfection. Now, this is the one I'm also going to be preaching again next week. So this is, there's a section of here that I'm going to talk about a little bit more next week, so I'll you know, get to look forward to that. But I would argue that one of the main reasons behind a lot of the Old Testament law is really to help us to understand our imperfection, that, that from the beginning, Adam's sin was put on us, that we were born sinners because we are born in the line of Adam. And so even just to look at some of these laws, again, a lot of people might look at them and just say, like, man, there, there's, there's so many, and really trying to understand. Like, even if you jump over to Leviticus chapter 11, starting in verse 10, he says, But anything in the seas or the river that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. What he's saying, and I know we've got some like real Southerners in here, no crawfish, no crawfish boils. And the one that hurts me, no crab, <sighs> nothing like good butter sauce, no crab and no lobster. So again, you look at that and you're thinking, seriously? Or how about this one? A couple of verses earlier, still in Leviticus 11, starting in verse 7, it says, and the pig, because it parts the hoof, is cleven footed, does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall not eat, you should not touch their carcasses, they are unclean to you. That means no bacon. You know, and this one, if I had lived in that time, there's a chance where I just walk up to the priest and say, hey, will this cover me for the year? Like, here, this is unblemished, just, I need my bacon, just take this. You know, again, it seems silly, it seems unnecessary, but I, th there's a purpose behind it. That not even just to keep with the purification, but I think to almost to help us to realize that we are imperfect. And as we've said over and over again, that Jesus comes thousands of years later and he helps the people to understand that it's not about behavior modification. It's not about behavior modification. It is about heart transformation. You know, he says that it's not just about killing people or not eating bacon, but it's about how are you loving God? 
He says, are you doing these things out of a love for him? Are you not eating bacon to show that you're a good person? Are you properly cleaning your house in the right ways, accordance to the law, to show how good you are? Or are you trying to earn your way to heaven by leading this ministry team or by going on this trip or just by showing up on Sunday mornings? God doesn't want your selfish obedience. The law was meant to be fulfilled, and the good news is that it's not by you. Thank God for that. Because that third thing, the third thing that the law talks about is to be reconciled with God. That the final aspect of this law document that we see in the Old Testament, it's mostly found in the book of Numbers, and it details all that the priests had to go through to get rid of the sin. That they had to clean of themselves, just scrub down to do a blood sacrifice for themselves, do it again for their own family to clean for themselves, for their families, do another blood sacrifice. Then they had to do it all over again for the people of Israel, over and over again for all of the sins that they committed. These ritual laws have now been superseded by the work of Christ, and thank God for that. That we are no longer under that law, but we are now under the law of Christ. Like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. You can kind of pique your interest a little bit. So the next style I want to talk about a little bit is wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is usually described as being very application driven. It's, it's wise. You know, you're seeking wisdom in this. And I would say it argues or it, it promotes the reader really to a sense of action or to a sense of change. And so the person who's most attributed to the wisdom literature found in the Old Testament is Solomon. A lot of people are familiar with David. You know, he's the kid with the slingshot, slayed the giant, great king, all that stuff. But his son Solomon, he's a pretty good king himself. That he's a rich, good-looking guy. Uh, he built a huge temple. He was world-renowned in the ancient world. And at one point, if you look in the Old Testament, he had the opportunity of a lifetime, of a lifetime. in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. He had this, this dream where God comes to him and says, I will give you anything that your heart desires. And Solomon, in response, says, I want to have wisdom and knowledge to lead your people well. So God says, sure, let's do this. So he grants Solomon all wisdom. And from that, he writes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, I'm not really going to get into Song of Solomon this morning because it's a bit spicy. Uh, but I think these other two are really fascinating because they're filled with just amazing words to live by. That, if you realize this, the date that they believe that these were written is around 1000 BC. So 3000 years later, we're still reading these things. And not only are we still reading these, they're still applicable. That I know a lot of people who read through uh, the Proverbs, there are 31 Proverbs, a lot of people who read through one proverb a day. And so there's a, still so much wisdom and so much application to the Proverbs. And I think that that attests to something. Dr. Dwayne Garrett from Baylor University puts it that the Proverbs are four things. They are practical in the sense that they instruct in the wise dealings. They're intellectual. They help you to increase learning. They're moral in aiding with righteousness, justice, and equality. And they're probing. That there's a heavy, heavy application to these. Even if we just look at, again, the very first proverb. I don't want to go digging through. Very first proverb, starting in verse 1. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, 
to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. And in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That looking at Solomon explain at the very, very first part of Proverbs, why he's even writing the book of Proverbs. That you have these lists of things in verses two through six of his purpose and his plan behind the book of Proverbs. And then it all accumulates to his main point in verse seven, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that when you start from there, true knowledge can be attained. That just as with the law, these Proverbs are a way that God has given you and has given you this opportunity for shalom, for universal flourishing, that he desires for you to flourish and to make good decisions. So he's given you all these things, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But even if you add in the book of Ecclesiastes to this, another wisdom literature book, I know a lot of the football team went through Ecclesiastes this last year, that Ecclesiastes provides a transformational perspective of what life is. And it allows God to truly work in your life. Just one of the earliest examples in the book of Ecclesiastes, it starts with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Some versions might say meaningless or worthless. What does man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? You know, a significant portion of this book is spent just attempting to get the reader to understand that chasing after the latest and greatest even in the ancient world, as a source of their joy, is futile. It's worthless. So that if you combine Solomon's writings in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, I'd argue that potentially the wisest man who has ever lived would say that a life that is filled with joy comes from two things, a fear of the Lord and a humble, teachable heart. And so, again, that wisdom literature of application, there's a lot there, and I'd challenge you uh, to read into it. So... So looking at the Old Testament as a historical document, as a law document, and as a collection of wisdom for wise living, um, but have you ever considered large sections of the Old Testament as just a collection of great poetry? Now, I know some of you guys might be sitting there thinking, like, poetry? No, 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 not about that. You know, roses red, violets are blue, that's all I need. Um, but I want to I challenge you with this a little bit. Don't disregard the way that poetry can stir emotions, especially in the context, of, uh, the context of which it's written, and especially if maybe you've gone through a similar situation. So first I want to look at just a non-biblical example. So uh, this is actually a, a song, and considering the last uh, rap song that was quoted up here was Mo Money, Mo Problems, <laughs> I'm going to try to transition a little bit. And so this one's from a guy named Tadashi. Uh, he has a song called Dark Days and Darker Nights, that he actually wrote after losing his one-year-old son in a car wreck. Oh, crap. Okay. I'm trying to hold myself together on this one. So he writes this just about his song. He says, in March of 2013, I had the worst day of my life. The loss of my son changed me forever. I experienced grief and sorrow to the depth of my soul, and the veil was lifted, the smoke cleared, and all that I had was pain. Instantly, phrases like, it's all good, and it'll be okay, were cliche, and at best, empty promises. The comfort of life with no pain was gone, and I saw the world in an entirely new way. I felt forsaken, alone, and in a place of darkness that had been kept masked by a focus on only the good side of life. The reality of being a Christian and suffering so harsh a thing was hard for me to grasp. 
I work to understand all I felt, experienced, and believed. I am human, I am hurt, but I am his. By his grace, I am what I am. So I'm going to put up some lyrics to his song, and again, thinking on the sides of poetry, and again, allowing it to stir your emotions. Uh, this is an example, again, from his song, Dark Days and Darker Nights. He says, looking at pictures, it's making me sadder, feeling so helpless, it's making me madder. Worst day of my life, and it's just getting badder, asking him why, and I'm looking for answers. Wondering if he'll ever come back. If he is, then man, can you pick up the slack? Because this place that I'm in, I may never come back. Feeling so lost, don't know where I'm at. Dark days and darker nights, heartbreak drains from this heart of mine. I don't understand it. I can't understand it. You know, poetry gives us a window into the soul of a person. And it's through that we can relate to them and insert ourselves into the story. And then now if we were to look at a biblical example, if you start in Psalm 22, it's a pretty famous psalm, but a lot of people don't realize it. It starts in verse 1. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. A lot of the New Testament writers, if they would have read this, they would have recognized this phrase, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani. It's actually the first words in uh, My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me? But it was the last words of Christ before he died. And so in the moment that Christ is literally dying on the cross, he recites poetry. And a lot of people look at that moment and they say, you know, he's, he, here he was doubting. Like, do you hear those last words that he's doubting Christ? Or that he's doubting God, but a lot of people don't realize that He's reciting this psalm. And if you go just one more verse farther, in, in verse 3, he says, Yet you are holy. That even in the midst of dying for our sins and agonizing, he understands that God is still in control. That God is still holy. That when we read the words in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, that we can read this psalm and we can read the words of Christ and understand that the cry of Jesus is the cry of his people and that the cry of his people is the cry of Jesus, that we are most like Christ during our suffering and our duress than at any other time in our lives. And we get to see David over the course of 150 psalms we get to see him, similar to what we've talked about this last semester, we get to see him fight for contentment and fight for right thinking. And you can read that as you go through the book of Psalms. And so again, I, I challenge you a little bit to, to step into those and just read those with that context. So the fifth style is prophecy. Now the Old Testament, if you didn't know this, is absolutely riddled with prophecy, starting from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Malachi. There's an estimated 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, with around 2,000 of them alone just regarding Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So when you come at it with an understanding that this is historical and that it is true, then there are a couple aspects that you have to realize about this. So for example, the time span that these prophecies took place under we're talking thousands of years. Let's look at some examples. So Genesis 3, long, long time ago. He said, he shall bruise your head, talking about the seed of Adam. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, talking about talking to Satan. And then what we see in Revelation 20, 
that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. So we see prophecy will be fulfilled. Or even in Psalm 41, that was written again around the year 1000 BC, that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then a reference in Luke 22 that says, but here at this table, and Jesus talking at the Last Supper, sitting among us as a friend is the man who will betray me, obviously talking about Judas. In Isaiah 53, and this happened, this is believed to have been written around the year 500 BC, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And in Mark 15, verses 4 and 5, when he was on trial, Pilate asked him, have you no answer? But Jesus made no further answer, so much so that Pilate was amazed that he didn't answer at all. Or even in Micah chapter 5, but you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler in Israel. And obviously in John 7, he has not, has not the scripture said that the Christ who comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. And these are just the softballs, guys. These are the slow pitch softballs, the easy one. There are 2,000 of these things just littered throughout the Old Testament. That there are thousands of prophecies ranging thousands of years by so many different people stressing that what you are reading is not only true, but what you are reading will still come to pass. Like, have you ever thought about it this way? What is prophetic literature if it doesn't come true? It's fiction. I, I thought of this corny line earlier. What is, it wouldn't be prophetic, it'd be pathetic. <laughs> hey, can't, can't win them all. Can't win them all. But if you think about it that way, that, that prophetic literature, if it doesn't come to pass, it's not prophetic literature. And so what we see is this God-breathed, God-driven, constantly pointing people to Christ. Constantly pointing people, his people, to the way that God is going to save them. And if you want, again, to look a little bit more into these, I'd recommend Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, and Micah 5. And all this leads us uh, to the final style, which is apocalyptic. Now, this one, this is a doozy. When you think of apocalyptic, a lot of times when you think of apocalyptic literature, you just think Revelation. That's it. But there's actually quite a bit found in the Old Testament. If you look uh, in the book of Daniel, uh, that's probably your biggest accumulation of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. Uh, first, ch first six chapters are pretty historical, and then the second six are the, the, the apocalyptic writing. Um, and, and that style in particular tends to be, have a lot of heavy symbolism uh, in the sense that so much so that it can almost be a bit ominous, maybe a little scary as you read it. But what's interesting, the word uh, apocalyptic or apocalypse, it really comes from the Greek word that means discourser of events. It, it wasn't intended to, to scare people. Uh, I think the biggest theme of apocalyptic literature is victory, hope, grace, God's plan, and that he is indeed in control. There's a couple pointers I wanna, I wanna give when you're trying to interpret apocalyptic literature. Now, there's a lot of theologians and a lot of non-theologians that still debate a lot of apocalyptic literature. Uh, so the biggest piece of advice, and whether you're trying to interpret it or talk to somebody about it, is to have grace. Again, we've talked about before that love is the tension between grace and truth. Have that tension when you're reading apocalyptic literature. Um, but that even when you do read it, and I've mentioned that there's a, usually a lot of heavy symbolism it's really best to assume that it's literal. 
assume that it's literal, unless the word in the context is yelling at you, hey, this is probably a metaphor. So go at it from that mindset, and then as you move forward, uh, you can kind of, again, come to a better understanding of it. And it's important to do this because about 20% of the New Testament is apocalyptic literature in some, some way. And so God, I would argue, sees it as important, which means we probably need to f- treat it with importance. And so I think when you think of apocalyptic literature, whether it's in the Old Testament in Daniel and Ezekiel or Revelation, I think you need to come at it with the theme and, and, and the idea of hope. That it's easy to allow something like fear to come in when you read one of those books because fear comes from a place of doubt. That when you read Christian apocalyptic literature and you read it from a stance of shame and doubt of who you are, especially who you are in Christ, and then you're, gonna, you're going to read apocalyptic writings with fear and dread. But if you do read those books, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, from a place of knowing who you are and what Christ has done for you, then you do read it with a sense of hope. That you have a hope that Christ will be coming back for you. That Christ will be coming back for his church. That you have a hope that God is coming to make all things new. That you have a hope that his church will be redeemed again. That when you read in Revelation 19, where he says his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name by which he is called is the word of God. You can have a hope because that's my God. Even the building shit just trembles. <laughs> that you can read apocalyptic literature and have hope because that's my God. And so I think it's important to have your mindset and have a proper mindset and knowing that there's something amazing going on when you read this literature. So now when you interpret any part of the Bible, a lot of times the way that we can do it is a great, again, a great way into understanding it, but sometimes it can also be a bit of a hindrance, because sometimes we haven't looked at certain parts of the Bible in maybe a different lens that might bring some different truth. So for example, so a lot of the Psalms are poetic, they're poetry, but it does mean something entirely different when you read it as prophecy, similar to what I showed earlier in Psalms 41. I think the beauty of scripture can be found when you're able to read certain certain passages with different interpretive lenses. So like, let's take the law, for example. A law document has to be detailed and specific. I know some of you guys work in law offices to various degrees. So it has to be detailed and specific. Otherwise, people are going to try and get off on loopholes. Uh, and so that when you read it, it can't be too loose because you don't want people just doing whatever they want. Then the law is useless. However, when we look at the text, and maybe you read it as prophecy, we realize that the laws are more than just to be followed that we get a deeper sense of who Jesus is and we get a better picture of what it was that he did for us and what it was that he did for us, especially on the cross. That since his blood was shed for you, that you no longer have to perform, that a blood sacrifice is no longer needed for that thing that you did when no one was looking, and that Christ's blood, better than blood from any unblemished animal that you saw in the law, has not only maintained it, but because he is so unblemished and so perfect that he has no longer maintained it, he has fulfilled us, giving us freedom from it. 
So even reading maybe historical literature about the, the building and purpose of the tabernacle and Exodus, you realize that it's also prophetic and that it shows and details what is taking place in the heart and soul of all believers when they accept Christ into their life. Or that when you read the first two chapters in the book of Genesis, you read God build his perfect dwelling place, one in which man, his creation, and himself, the creator, can live in perfect harmony with one another. Only for his creation to disobey against him through their own selfishness and pride. Now, most people are going to read that as history and see it as a stepping block for what sets the stage for Jesus to, to come later. And they wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But again, I think there's beauty and truth to be found in the depth of the scriptures. Because these first two chapters can also be read as apocalyptic. I'm going to show you. And to show that I'm not making it up, turn to Revelation 21. What you will see is a mirrored version of what you read in the first part of Genesis. Because what we read is instead of a building of God only to be torn apart because of man, what we see is God intervening. Again, there's, in a lot of your Bibles, there's probably a little subheading at the start of chapter 21. It's a new heaven and a new earth. That God has taken what is broken in Genesis 3 and restores it to its original glory. And that, my friends, is the gospel displayed in the first two chapters and the last two chapters. That God, in all his glory, creates life magnificently. And we, his creation, come along through pride and selfishness to try and take care of things on our own. We sin and rebel against the very being that has given us life. But then in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, God redeems his creation through the death of his son so that we will not, have, we will not perish but have eternal life. He says, when I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, sh neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So the question becomes, what is our response? Again, the entire Old Testament is the gospel. It points to Christ in so many different ways. And as we come to understand the beauty and the promise of this book, it calls us to a response. Now, we're getting ready to receive communion. If you're a Christ follower, I want you to come up and receive communion, to take a piece of the bread, to dip it in the juice, and to remember all the Old Testament, what it had prophesied, what it pointed to, and to remember what that means for you. If you're not a Christ follower, just hold back on this one. But if, I, would, I would argue if you have any questions, any questions, myself and the elders will be up front afterwards. And you feel free to come talk to us about anything. The band, if you want to start coming up now, um, we're going to pray about what all this means. I know there's a lot this morning, but I want you to think about it 
to pray about it. And again, I hope that as we spend the rest of this year in the Old Testament, that a greater understanding of it can come. And from that, a greater understanding of the God who created us and it can come as well. I'm going to pray real quick.